Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Power Shift 09, This American Life, La Show, Counterspin, A Congressional Hearing, The Onion Radio News, On the Media, and NPR. of Chicago. It all starts with Tufts University. Uh, we come from a place called Black Mesa. And I'm from the great state of Louisiana. I want to tell a story that begins in a place where all good stories begin, in uh, Wisconsin. Each of us has our story, and this is mine. It's just one of 10,000 in this room. I grew up working in the petrochemical industry of Louisiana. I am from La Villita, the little village community in Chicago, with 95,000 residents, and over half are under the age of 21. My story is about not knowing what you have until you lose it. And those single mothers throughout America who every day must make a decision as to whether they buy a gallon of gas or a gallon of milk. 1.2 billion do not have safe water to drink. Throughout these years, I have been encouraged by so many amazing people, young and old, black and white. It is our generation that will ultimately inherit this planet. For indigenous peoples, our word for the environment is Mother Earth. We're going to create an environment that is safe for our children and our children's children. We are getting nowhere unless we bring all our peoples with us. Energy policies such as cap and trade will not solve the greater environmental and health issues. That's like trying to clean your room by shoving all of your mess into the drawer. Physically, it looks appealing. Internally, let's be real, it's a bigger mess than it was before. If humanity wishes to preserve a planet similar to that on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted, the atmospheric concentration of CO2 can't be more than 350 parts per million. The planet is running a fever, but there are no emergency rooms for planets. You have to engage in preventative care to make sure that the disease does not get any worse. I must extend to you an apology on behalf of my generation and generations before me. Because it is my generations and generations before who contributed to the many environmental catastrophes that we're facing today. In the same way that President Kennedy called on young people to join the Peace Corps and President Clinton called for service was the AmeriCorps. Who in this room is ready to join a clean energy corps that will drive this revolution, that will save the planet? I'm actually going to be able to drink a clean glass of water. And I worked in those plants and became very disturbed as I looked through the fence line, only to realize that the protections that were offered to us within the fence line were not offered to those on the other side. And I came to the realization that my calling in life was to work for the people on the other side. So this fight is not going to be easy. And we cannot achieve environmental justice without achieving social and political justice. It is going to take more work than any of us have ever done. 
It is going to take long nights. It's going to take endless determination. It's going to take ideas we have yet to come up with. And it is going to take an unparalleled desire to win. We need to relearn our responsibility to community. Hope comes when people come together from all walks of life. When two generations ago, young women did not have the right to vote, young women created a suffragette movement. They organized and they got the right to vote. It was young people who got themselves a president. It was young people who got themselves a Congress. It was young people who put the environment and climate change on the agenda, on the national agenda. We have the chance here to make a difference, to really do what those students in Tiananmen Square did when they lay down in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square. That the students in Berlin, when they knocked down the Berlin Wall. I have waited 20 years to see what the global warming movement was going to look like, and now I know, and it's awful sweet. We'll say it was PowerShift who told us that we can no longer depend on fossil fuels for our energy future. If there has ever been a group of people in American history up to the challenge, it is this generation, it is my generation, it is the group of people sitting in front of me tonight. Sunrise, sunrise, looks like morning in your eyes, but the clock's held 9.15 for hours. Sunrise, sunrise, couldn't tempt us if it tried, cause the afternoon's already coming home. And I said, the most important speech Barack Obama gave in November. Didn't get much press coverage. In fact, it wasn't even important enough for Barack Obama to show up in person to deliver. He pre-taped a video. But for the people who saw this speech, it was a big, big deal. This was at the opening session of an international conference on global warming that had been convened in Los Angeles by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mary Nichols is in charge of creating California's climate change policies and is close to some people in the Obama camp. So she was one of the few people attending who knew that the video was on the program. Barack Obama had just been elected two weeks before. A lot of us were still kind of uh, absorbing the reality that we actually were going to have a new president. And I really wasn't expecting much more than a welcome and congratulations and I'm so glad you're doing this kind of message. I really wasn't expecting anything of substance. 
So we're in this gigantic ballroom, and, you know, there's hundreds of people from all over the world. From, I believe, over 50 uh, states, provinces, and countries. This is Anthony Eggert, a senior policy advisor for the California Air Resources Board. Governor Schwarzenegger um, basically introduced the conference, welcomed the delegates. I want to welcome you all to the uh, Governor's Global Climate Summit. And then uh, said we have a, you know, a welcome message uh, from our president-elect. A video from our president-elect. Barack Obama, just to show to you, just to show to you. That and we are now um, the same then the video comes up. You know, so there's Barack Obama just facing the camera and starting to talk. When I heard him come on, it was really shocking. Lucia Green Weisskopf works promoting low carbon policies in China, and she attended the conference with the Chinese delegation. Because I had been listening really carefully throughout the entire um, campaign about his position on climate change and frankly hadn't heard a whole lot of very specific commitments. Yeah, it was a bit frustrating. And he didn't spend a lot of time on it from my perspective. I mean, I I wanted him to sort of say this is the most important thing and he didn't say that. Um, But then all of a sudden he seemed to be saying that. Few challenges facing America and the world are more urgent than combating climate change. The science is beyond dispute and the facts are clear. Did you have any reaction when he said, the science is beyond dispute? I thought, you know, some people in the Bush White House might be like, hey, wait a minute, that's not what we were saying, you know. In fact, everything about the way this speech was heard had to do with the last eight years and President Bush. President Bush, of course, did not acknowledge that human beings had anything to do with global warming until 2005, his second term. And even then, he didn't do much to fix the problem. In fact, his administration tried to block others from taking action. When California policymakers like Mary Nichols created regulations to curb greenhouse gases in their own state, the Bush administration went out of its way to strike down those state laws. And all of this informed how everybody in this room heard this speech. I I think there was a huge amount of pent-up frustration and anger, and now it was actually okay to say it really is over. And once I take office, you can be sure that the United States will once again engage vigorously and help lead the world toward a new era of global cooperation on climate change. Now's the time to confront this challenge once and for all. Part of what's uh, striking about this video is he is is very emphatic. He says, now is the time to confront this. He says, delay is no longer an option. Denial is no longer an option. When he was saying those things, what did you feel? Well, it was was amazement because um, I never thought that I would hear someone who was the elected president of the United States saying those, those words. It was pretty emotional and pretty stunning in a lot of ways. And it felt, especially, you know, in the context of being among this Chinese delegation, I felt, wow, we elected this guy, and I'm proud. If I remember correctly, I may have actually done a fist pump. You did a fist pump to a video, a pre-taped video? I I, I have to admit that I did, yes. You know, again, this was really, uh, it was a watershed moment in, in my career. As a professional, I never felt that way because, you know, I've only been working as an environmentalist under Bush. There were people crying. I had tears in my eyes, too. I can't deny it. Really? I have to tell you, like, you're, you're a former federal official. I mean, you're, you're a hard-boiled... <laughs> 
government. Uh, yeah, well, it, <laughs> I don't know how hard boiled, but yeah. it's true. We don't we don't do a lot of crying in public. <laughs> but this was a very emotional moment. There's no question about it. It was just a it was just a ray of hope. We we clapped and then you have to stop really fast because it's a video and he keeps talking and then you also want to hear what he's going to say. So it was kind of awkward applause. Very uh, enthusiastic, but then very short. Barack Obama even laid out, in more detail than they'd ever heard, specific targets for reducing greenhouse gases. And he concluded with just kind of a simple thanks. Thank you. And there was a pause, and then you know everybody just kind of stood up and, and gave the standing ovation, which, you know, again, is also, um, uh, I guess, intriguing because this is a video address. Uh, right, he's on he's on videotape. Like he doesn't know that you're standing up and clapping. Exactly, exactly. But I think it was just everybody was just so enthusiastic they couldn't help themselves. All of a sudden, the world seemed like a place where people, you know, where countries could come together and be productive again. In general, people who are drawn to working in the environment are not. Um, usually optimistic. They, they're they used to, you know, hmm. thinking about all the, the bad things that are going to happen and fighting for every bit of ground. So this is one of those rare opportunities to hear somebody who has the, the youth and the uh, eloquence of Obama taking on this issue so clearly and strongly was um, just overwhelming. You're not going to want to miss what we have available at the brand new Best of the Left store. You can get all of our great designs, including some cool retro ones that no one's ever seen before, on all kinds of great Cafe Press apparel and other fun items they have available. If you prefer a Cafe Press alternative, we got you covered. Check out everything we have available at our Print Fection store. Aside from all that fun stuff, we've got something really useful for you. We've just started a brand new podcast by mail service. So say you know someone, maybe even yourself, who loves this show or would love it, but they're just not tech savvy enough to do the whole podcasting thing. They couldn't download it every week, not going to listen online. Give them a podcast by mail subscription and they'll have the CDs of every edition sent right to their house every week. All this now available at the new store at bestoftheleft.com. Quickly, news of the warm, won't you? Scientists are for the first time objectively evaluating ways to help species adapt to rapid climate change via strategies that were considered too radical for serious consideration as recently as five or ten years ago. Among these radical strategies currently being considered, so-called managed relocation, which is also known as assisted migration, involves manually moving species into more accommodating habitats where they're not currently found. Let's just get this little fella up here into a, a cooler climate. A new groundbreaking tool to help 
Decision makers determine if and when and how to use managed relocation as described in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in a current issue. Managed relocation until now has been eschewed by some scientists for fear that relocated species would overpopulate their new habitats, cause extinctions of local species, or clog water pipes as invasive zebra mussels have done in the Great Lakes. Still, sounds like a good idea. Why is it once taboo, now potentially harmful, now being seriously considered? Because, says a researcher, it is becoming increasingly overwhelmingly evident that climate change is a reality. It is fast and large. Consequences will arise within decades, not centuries. So action seems much more important now than even five or ten years ago. Now, he says, a do-nothing response to climate change involves significant risks. We can't continue to say, let nature run its course. There's no letting nature run its course anymore. Humans have already changed the world. That's what we wanted to do. That was the idea. Isn't that what they all say in beauty pageants? I want to change the world. The most comprehensive modeling yet carried, speaking of modeling, carried out on the likelihood of how much hotter the Earth's climate will get in this century shows that without rapid and massive action, the problem will be about twice as severe as previously estimated six years ago and could be even worse than that. The study uses the MIT Integrated Global Systems Model, a detailed computer simulation of global economic activity and climate processes. The new research involved 400 runs of the model, with each run using slight variations selected so that each run has about an equal probability of being correct based on present knowledge. The MIT model is the only one... Sounds worse. (laughs) That's all I know. And there was a theory that uh, as... The Arctic melted and new uh, vegetation grew. That vegetation would trap some of the carbon that was being released. But a new study says only for a little while. And then the excess carbon will overwhelm the ability of the new vegetation to uh, absorb it. So don't rely on the tundra. TV pundit George Will is one of the few climate change deniers left standing in the corporate media, putting him in the rarefied company of John Stossel and Glenn Beck. So it was not a surprise to see him take up the issue in his February 15th Washington Post column. The problem for readers, and for the Post, is that Will's argument was built on factual errors. He started by citing news magazines from the 1970s that were warning of global cooling, his point being that scientists don't know what they're talking about.
talking about. But careful studies of the science at that time arrive at the opposite conclusion. In other words, most climate experts were writing about warming, not cooling. Will then claimed that sea ice isn't melting, it's increasing, according to University of Illinois researchers. Well, that came as a surprise to those Illinois scientists who quickly posted a note on their website saying that Will was wrong. Will closed his column by claiming that, quote, according to the UN World Meteorological Organization, there has been no recorded global warming for more than a decade, close quote. While this tall tale was peddled by right-wing climate change deniers, including George Will, causing the UN to issue a statement correcting the record in 2007. Will's trick here is pretty straightforward. The deniers take 1998 as their starting point, and they see that temperatures have declined slightly since then. Well, the problem is that 1998 was unusually hot, and the so-called cooler years since then have actually been the warmest decade on record. The Post has been called out on this column by many critics, including Fair, but so far there's been no response. Will is perfectly entitled to believe that global warming is a hypothetical concern, but does the Washington Post and the hundreds of papers that reprint Will's column care about accuracy? But if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to give honesty. Chairman, uh, other committee members, I'm just uh, happy to be here and I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk. Uh, I was here in 2007 when the term green collar job was uh, very rarely heard uh, anywhere. Uh, this may have been the first place it was, it was heard in Congress. And now it is everywhere and that reflects something. It reflects a hunger and a desire on the part of the American people to solve the two biggest crises possibly ever to face this country an economic catastrophe and a climate crisis, uh, both of which could undermine uh, our, our nation's security, uh, our economy, not just now, but for decades into the future. Uh, you, uh, unlike the rest of us, uh, next week we'll, we're going to be celebrating. Uh, you'll celebrate for about 10 minutes and then you're going to go back to sweating. Uh, sweating over the details of this recovery, sweating over the details of how it is that we can actually beat uh, the recession and global warming at the same time. The 111th Congress will be in the history books. A hundred years from now, uh, students will study this Congress and they will ask one question. Uh, were you able to solve the problem? Were you able to uh, deal with this twin uh, crisis? How did you do it? And you're going to get a grade from our great-grandchildren, yes or no, pass or fail. 
The reason that green jobs are so important is because they are the most secure way to ensure success for this Congress. And the whole country now is looking for a change. You have the opportunity to turn this breakdown into a breakthrough. And you can if you honor three principles. Number one, this is the chance for America finally to return to its roots as the most important economy in the world. Not because we are the number one consumers, but because we are the number one producers. Uh, uh, Congressman Inslee pointed out that there, are, there is an opportunity to bring green manufacturing jobs back to this, this country, making batteries, making wind turbines, doing those things in the United States. Uh, let us seize the opportunity to, to abandon the idea that we can forever be the most important economy in the world based on consumption, based on consumerism, based on credit cards. Let's get back to building rather than borrowing in the United States, number one. Number two, as we honor Brenner, uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner's plea for accountability, and I will underscore that, uh, we don't want to see any more wasted money. Right. We can't afford it. We don't want to see any more of the Katrinas and those kind of things. We can't afford it. But as we do that, let's make sure we get our math right. Uh, this is a green economy we're trying to build. And in a green economy, the math is different. You don't just count what you spend. You count what you save. This is the key point. Uh, when you're building a green economy, you don't just count what you spend. You count what you save. And a massive investment, as the mayors are calling for, in energy efficiency will save us money over the long term. And that's the importance of the energy efficiency and conservation block grant that the mayors have fought so valiantly for. The third is simply this. We have an opportunity to do something that no generation of Americans has ever had the opportunity to do. We can build a green economy that Dr. King would be proud of. We have the opportunity to connect the people who most need work with the work that most needs to be done and fight pollution and poverty at the same time and be one country about it. We have a chance to, take, to, to slow up for just a second, as Congressman Cleaver said. We might have to delay two weeks to, to help uh, some of the young men and, and young women that you represent to get a, a, a little bit more training to get involved. We might have to wait three. We might, have to wait, wait. we might have to hold up a month to get some of these young folks coming home from wars, coming home from prisons, coming out of high school. We might have to even wait an extra month to get them trained to become a part of this. But if we do that, we will have built a green wave that can lift all boats. We will have created green pathways out of poverty. We will have shown a new generation of Americans that we can stand together and do great things again, and that differences of color and class, starting point differences don't matter, because we have a big future we're trying to fight for together. You, as the leaders of the 111th Congress, on this most pressing issue, have the opportunity to make us the number one producer in the world, to change the math so we count what counts. We don't just count what we spend, we also count what we save. And to connect the people who most need work to the work that most needs to be done. And if you do that, our great-great-grandchildren will give you an A+. Thank you very much.
And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the war, won't you? Glenn, we have to get on with it. The number of polluted dead zones in the world's oceans is rising fast, and coastal, coastal fish stocks are more vulnerable to collapse than previously feared, scientists said this week. The spread of dead zones, areas of oxygen-starved water is emerging as a major threat to coastal ecosystems globally. This is from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Marine organisms are more vulnerable to low oxygen content than currently recognized, with fish and crustaceans being the most vulnerable. They're also good eating. The number of reported low oxygen zones is growing globally at a rate of 5% a year, said one of the researchers. The number has risen from almost none in the late 1970s to almost more than 140 in 2004. Higher temperatures tied to global warming blamed by the U.N., on human use of fossil fuels may aggravate the problem of dead zones, partially because oxygen dissolves less readily in warmer water. I didn't know that. See? You learn something every few weeks. And apples and sweet corn, brook trout and smallmouth bass, fall foliage and winter snow cover will all disappear from Pennsylvania if uh, global warming continues at current rates, according to a detailed state-specific climate change report by the Union of Concerned Scientists. The report says if emissions of carbon dioxide are not significantly reduced, the state's climate by the end of the century will closely resemble Alabama and Georgia, and the accent will surely follow. Arctic ice extent during the 2000 melt season, not smelt, melt, dropped to the second lowest level since satellite measurements began in 1979, reaching the lowest point in its annual cycle of melt and growth on September 14th. Preliminary data also indicate 2008 may represent the lowest volume of Arctic sea ice on record. According to the researchers, it's due to rising concentrations of greenhouse gases that have elevated temperatures across the Arctic and the presence of serapine. No, not true. And the strong natural variability in Arctic sea ice, according to the scientists involved. After a heavy barrage of criticism over Washington Post columnist George Will's error-filled February 15th column on climate change, the paper's new ombud put out a response. 
which, rather than clearing Will, managed to reveal how the columnist gets away with such falsehoods. Will's original column included three significant problems. He misrepresented scientific research in the 1970s by claiming that cooling was the prevailing concern. He misrepresented University of Illinois research on global sea ice, and he claimed that UN climate researchers have found, quote, no recorded global warming for more than a decade, close quote. Post-Ombud, Andy Alexander explained that Will's column was checked by no less than five editors, including the op-ed page editor. In Will's defense, Alexander took up only the sea ice issue, citing a University of Illinois statement that he claimed supported Will. In fact, as the blog Political Animal pointed out, if Alexander had read a little more closely, he would have realized that the statement was written specifically to refute an analysis similar to Will's. In other words, the Ombud offered an expert refutation of Will's argument as evidence that Will was correct. Alexander's response was seconded by Washington Post Writers Group editorial director Alan Shearer, who told the blog Think Progress, quote, we have plenty of references that support what George wrote, and we have others that dispute that, so we didn't have enough to send in a correction, close quote. This is perhaps even more bizarre than Alexander's take. The group whose research Will is misrepresenting has said his column is inaccurate. Wouldn't their views about their own research carry more weight than other references that back up Will? Branson purchases the remainder of the North Pole. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. English business tycoon Richard Branson paid over $675,000 for all 52 square miles of the rapidly melting North Pole today. The billionaire told reporters of plans to turn the once foreboding mass of ice into a five-star traveling ski resort. The hardest part is to keep it from melting away completely and teaching the Eskimos how to serve margaritas. In 2002, Branson purchased the last Stone Age tribe in New Guinea and sent them into outer space because he could. Doyle Redmond for the Standing audience. there alone, the ship is waiting, all systems are go. Are you sure? Control is not convinced, but the computer has the evidence. No need to abort the countdown star. Watching in a trance, the crew is certain, nothing left to chance. All is working, trying to relax. Up in the capsule, sent me up a drink. Jokes, major tone. The count goes on.
A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times Magazine published a cover story on Freeman Dyson, an eminent physicist who has been in residency at Princeton University's Institute for Advanced Studies since the 1950s. The piece, titled The Global Warming Heretic, chronicles, among other things, Dyson's unorthodox opinions on climate change namely his belief that scientists rely too much on computer-generated models and that carbon dioxide, which is contained in coal smoke, is not that bad for the environment. Of course, his thinking flies in the face of an overwhelming preponderance of scientific research. Dyson himself says that his views might be wrong, and they're, quote, more a matter of judgment than knowledge. Some of the reaction to the article was severe, as bloggers and online commenters questioned the magazine's judgment, author Nicholas Davidoff's credentials, and Freeman Dyson's grip on reality. Among the most vitriolic was Joe Rome, a writer for the Climate Progress blog at the Center for American Progress, who ridiculed all involved and alleged that the attention devoted to Freeman Dyson was shameful. If he were a Holocaust denier, or if he said cigarettes were good for you, then Davidoff would not be writing this favorable, extensive profile of his life and times. You know, i got to say, uh, back in the 70s, a guy named William Shockley, who had won the Nobel Prize in physics for his work in developing the transistor, started coming out with some genuinely crackpot theories on race and was ridiculed and attacked. But the outrageousness of his theories did not make me less want to know what led to his using his Nobel laureate status as a bully pulpit for racist pseudoscientific views. I wanted to know more about him, not less. When people say controversial things, shouldn't we want to know more about them, not less? Because of the way it covers global warming and similar issues, as he said, she said, the media guarantee that a certain fraction of the community is going to go out there and say outrageous things to be covered. I think that if there's a fire in a theater and you are screaming, there's no fire, don't move then you don't deserve a cover profile in the New York Times magazine. Don't you give the audience any credit for a story that clearly characterizes Dyson's views as way beyond the scientific consensus? Do you credit them not at all for being able to parse the relative weight of these arguments? The public is not scientifically expert. And the public's ability to distinguish science and pseudoscience, which sound pretty much the same, is very small. So it is up to the filters, the media, to use its own judgment based on talking to many different sources and itself weighing the credibility of sources. What the New York Times Magazine has done is elevate Dyson to a very high degree of credibility as a highly credible source on global warming, which he isn't. Wow, I so can't believe we've read the same story. The story I read didn't promote his opinions in any fashion such as you're describing. I disagree. Let me make two points. It states many of his positions at length and doesn't rebut each one of them. 
that I think is, is very important. Second, it is well known that most people, when they read things, they don't recall many months later rebuttals or how things were couched. There are a lot of people who read this who don't have an informed opinion, and they are going to read this, and they're going to think, oh, geez, there's a very smart guy out there who thinks global warming might well be good for us, and we don't need to do anything about it because we're going to invent genetically engineered carbon-eating trees. And I just think that it is this, you know, height of journalistic elitism to think that we're going to write a piece so clever that people will read between the lines to realize that we're secretly mocking him. I don't suggest that he was mocking him either, but I think you're also ignoring the preponderance of the New York Times' reporting over the years, the, the extensive coverage that, for example, Andrew Revkin has given to this subject, you know, that I would say in no way sugarcoats the issue of climate change. Uh, the New York Times does do some fine reporting on global warming, but the reader of this piece may or may not have read that. The media doesn't have unlimited space and certainly not in high-profile places like uh, a cover profile in the New York Times magazine. And when they choose to write at length about a man like this, they are saying his ideas merit serious discussion. I got to tell you, Joe, you know, this show has been right out in front of criticizing the way the media have covered global warming on, on precisely the false equivalency issues that we've discussed. But I just didn't see this story as having done that. It seems to me that you're not even angry about this story so much as you are about the press's whole history of covering this issue. I hear what you're saying. As I say, I believe that the vast majority of the media and the public don't get how dire the situation is. I have talked to most of the leading climate scientists in the country. I read the literature closely. I also understand the nature of the energy system and how difficult it is going to be to reverse course and how much effort and time that takes. And this is worse than a needless distraction. This is just parceling out bad information with good information and hoping that the public is smart enough to distinguish the two. Joe, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And forget Just, just, just glide. Global warming and cleaner skies are making it rain more. Martin Wild of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology and his colleagues analyzed global measurements of solar radiation and rainfall taken between 86 and 2000. On average, surface solar radiation has increased 
and rainfall has increased as well. In recent decades, air pollution has dropped, so more sunlight is penetrating the atmosphere, says Wild. Meanwhile, rising levels of greenhouse gases are bouncing radiation back to the Earth's surface. Don't ask me how it's doing that. The extra energy has fueled an increase in evaporation. The intensification of the water cycle means more heavy precipitation events, more flooding, and more landslides, erosion, and overloading of water management systems. Unquote. Is that a bad thing? Did I mention that this is the award-winning news of the war? More than 750,000 years old, says New Scientist. Huge chunks of ice have survived through times when the planet was even warmer than it is today. Dwayne Froze of the University of Alberta and colleagues say their discovery, these huge chunks of ice, the oldest ice ever found in North America, could help us predict the fate of the deep Arctic permafrost and its frozen storage of methane. Don't let the methane out. It's worse than the dogs. Ice wedges form when spring melt water runs into fissures and then freezes. Thermal expansion widens the cracks and allows the wedge. (laughs) I'll be with you in a moment here. To grow up to around three meters wide and six meters deep. And you metric folks, I know, will email me about how big that is. The team discovered the ancient ice several years ago at a site in the Canadian Yukon just east of the Alaskan border. I can see it from my porch. It had been exposed by mining activities in the area. They were able to date it thanks to a layer of ancient volcanic ash, almost 5,000 years old, you know, when the Earth was created, that had been deposited a few dozen centimeters above its top margin. That ash was about 740,000 years old. Are you kidding me? Making the ice the oldest known in North America. Much of the ice in that region dates to the last 100,000 years, and most of the last 25,000, says the researcher. This means the Dominion Creek ice wedges must have survived two interglacial ages when it was warm. This illustrates how stubborn permafrost can be in the face of climate warming. Permafrost, for those of you who didn't pay attention in high school, is ground that remains frozen all year round, hence the name. This arrests the decay of vegetation preventing the carbon which it contains from being released into the atmosphere. But these findings don't mean that the Arctic permafrost will survive the few degrees of warming predicted for the end of the century. All right, then. I'll think about that. Meanwhile, climate change could lead to a surge in cases of Legionnaire's disease, British government scientists have warned in a story in the UK paper, The Telegraph. A study carried by the Health Protection Agency has found that higher temperatures and increases in humidity are linked with an increase in Legionnaire's disease cases. Study, one of the first of its kind in Europe, found that heat waves corresponded to higher causes, cases of the disease than periods of more stable weather. Dressing my voice up on the phone Underneath the envy rotting my bones I'd do anything to get you alone If just for a while Blame it on the way that I talk You can blame it on the way that I look You can blame it on the stuff that I drank And the pills that I took 
push is on to make the nation's aging electricity grid smarter so that it can handle our growing demand for electricity without devastating blackouts like the one that hit in 2003. The Obama administration is also trying to make the grid greener to help address global warming. As part of our series on the smart grid, NPR's Richard Harris found that being smarter and greener don't necessarily go hand in hand. There's so much hoopla about the smart grid, General Electric, for the first time ever, bought a Super Bowl ad to sell something that consumers can't even buy. Remember the scarecrow dancing along the power lines? Smart grid technology from GE will make the way we distribute electricity more efficient simply by making it more intelligent. But giving the grid a brain doesn't necessarily mean it will make green decisions. Likewise, the big push to expand the electric grid into areas rich with renewable energy doesn't guarantee that the new improved grid will be more climate friendly. We'll get to that issue in a minute, but first, about smart equaling green. Smart grid technology means several kinds of innovations. One is that both customers and utilities will be able to monitor electric use minute by minute. Steve Nadell, who runs a nonprofit called the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, says that information alone doesn't make the smart grid green. As uh, one friend of mine says, a smart grid needs smart programs and smart rates. Smart programs could, for example, help people see how they're using electricity so they can find painless ways to conserve. And smart rates could create incentives for people to save electricity by charging more at some times and less at others. In principle, cheaper energy should encourage environmentally friendly objectives. But Nadell says not all smart grid experiments have used their brains. Some utilities have programs to encourage nighttime lighting. You know, gee, you know, make your house look beautiful, make it more secure, light it up like it's Times Square or something. That's an example. And oh, don't worry, it's only two cents a kilowatt hour. We give you a special nighttime discount. In some cases, people use not only more energy, but dirtier energy too. Why dirtier? Well, in some parts of the country, nighttime electricity comes from coal-fired power plants. They're usually the cheapest source, so they get used first. When demand is higher during the day, the additional electricity is more likely to come from cleaner natural gas. So, in the parts of the country that rely heavily on coal power, nighttime energy means dirtier energy. Nadell says the good news is that smart grid pilot programs so far have by and large encouraged conservation. Some of them have saved quite a bit of energy. Some have actually built some load, and the devil's always in the details. Details also bedevil another feature of the expanded smarter grid, new transmission lines. In California, San Diego Gas and Electric has been pushing to build a major new power line into the neighboring Imperial Valley. In this online ad, the utility is selling its new transmission lines partly on the environmental benefits. The Sunrise Power Link is needed for the San Diego region. All customers will benefit by improved reliability, accessing lower cost power, and linking customers to renewable power sources. Anybody who's proposing a transmission line in the United States these days is going to claim the line's going to be used for renewable. It's going to be a green line because it's mom and apple pie. Diane Grunick sits on the California Public Utilities Commission, which ultimately voted on the merits of the Sunrise Power Line. 
San Diego Gas and Electric said the power line would bring huge amounts of clean solar and geothermal energy into San Diego. The claims by the utility were very hotly disputed. The utility was basing its arguments on clean energy sources it hopes will be developed in the Imperial Valley in the coming years. But Grunick says hopes and aspirations are a lot different from legally binding commitments. Existing contracts that SDG&E had signed from this area, the Imperial Valley, would only fill up about 20 percent of the line. And that means then the other 80 percent of the power that would flow over this line could easily would likely come from coal-fired power plants elsewhere in the western United States. The Public Utilities Commission voted to approve the line anyway. Grunick cast the only no vote. She says this sort of debate is likely to play out nationwide as power companies bid to string new lines as they expand and strengthen the electric grid. Power company investors will make a profit no matter what kind of electricity the lines carry. So Grunick says we need laws requiring power companies to buy lots of green electricity. This isn't rocket science. (laughs) It's, It's actually the good thing. We don't need to develop whole new technologies. We're not making bets on will we be able to develop a whole new way of doing things. It's just really being serious about if we're going to spend this money, if we're going to call something green, let's make sure it happens. And that comes down to politics. Indeed, bills are now wending their way through Congress that would help assure that the smart grid is also green. Now I sit and waste my time. My room is quiet as a mime. And wait for someone glamorous to call. Washington Post columnist George Will, the most syndicated columnist in the United States, came under fire in February for spreading misinformation about climate change. Not one to be intimidated by facts, Will came back with another column on April 2nd peddling similar pseudoscience. Will wrote, quote, Reducing carbon emissions supposedly will reverse warming, which is allegedly occurring even though, according to statistics published by the World Meteorological Organization, there has not been a warmer year on record than 1998, close quote. Citing the temperature of a single year as a disproof of climate change is, intellectually speaking, about one step above pointing at an April snowstorm as evidence that the world isn't getting warmer. 1998, the year Will cites, is the hottest year on record, but the last 13 years have included all 11 of history's hottest years, a clear trend that is just part of the evidence that has led an overwhelming majority of climate scientists to conclude that human activity is causing the global temperature to rise. The Washington Post claims to have a fact-checking process in place to catch errors by its columnists. Will's repeated trumpeting of bogus climate science makes it clear, though, that the Post thinks its columnists are entitled to their own opinions and to their own facts. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. I just have a couple of notes about the show before we sign off. Uh, first of all, is everybody aware that we're doing two shows a week now? I just want to make this clear. You know, maybe it's obvious to some of you. Anyone who does not update their podcast as regularly as some, I just want you to know that our posting schedule now is going to be consistently, as consistently as I can make it, Wednesdays and over the weekend, usually Saturday. So make sure you're not missing a show. Update your podcast uh, feed regularly and uh, and get every episode as it comes down the pipe. I also just want to say a quick thanks to those of you who have started sending in uh, suggestions on how to sweeten the membership deal. Uh, some good ideas coming in. If you have ideas to help sweeten the membership deal on the website, please send those in. Just to quickly catch you up, I'm asking for people who are able to sign up for a $5 or more monthly membership to the best of the left. Right now, unfortunately, all you get is the pure blissful knowledge that you are one of the few, the proud, the brave, helping to keep this show going strong at two episodes a week. I've recently come down with a case of underemployment, and the little bit of money coming in from the memberships is giving me the breathing room to put more time and effort into this show and produce more episodes for all of you, which is what we all want. So if you are able to become a member now, I will love you forever for it. And if you just have ideas on how to better serve those members and incentivize that program a little bit more, I would love to hear it. I'm, I'm more than willing to do extra work to give those members their money's worth. I'm just in the brainstorming phase of how exactly to do that. And finally, at absolutely no cost, please keep those votes coming in at Podcast Alley. I would love to see us be in the top 10 there and get a little bit of extra promotion for the show. If you're interested in helping promote the show every month on Podcast Alley, sign up for our newsletter and we'll send you a reminder link every month and it'll be the easiest bit of online activism you've ever done. So that's it for today. Clip sources and music links can be found in the show notes on the blog. I'm coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fond farewell to a friend